Britflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'd be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast, FrightFest 2019 preview series. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Eric uh, Penikoff. Hello Eric. Hey, how's it going Stuart? Going very well, going very well. Um, we're here to talk about your movie, Statistic Intentions, which is playing at the FrightFest. So before we do anything in any detail, do you want to... Do you want to tell people what they can expect? Give us a brief synopsis of what Sadistic Intentions is all about, please. Yeah, well, it screens on the 23rd at uh, Cineworld on the Discovery screen. And the story is about a, a sort of a, a frustrated metal musician uh, gets invited to a home in conjunction with a lonely stoner. They have a mutual acquaintance that they believe they're going to be seeing at the house, but they don't know each other. And they show up. The house is empty, the friend is gone, and these two sort of opposites attract characters basically have to endure each other for a time before a, a, a series of secrets and intentions are revealed, and the, uh, the mutual friend of theirs is actually lurking quite close in the, with, within the house and they're unaware of. So uh, it's pretty much the setup to the film. It's basically a three-person, uh, you know, romantic horror thriller in the vein of early... Uh, films from the 90s, very sleazy films like Cape Fear, Dead Calm, uh, you know, anything that just has a, you know, a, 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 a seedy character, some some steamy romance boiling in the background, and uh, yeah, quite a, quite a bit of tension throughout. Cool, cool. Okay, well, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can follow that for more details um, as to where and how and times and stuff. Um, but before we go into more detail about your movie, it's the 20th anniversary of Fright Fest that you're going to be attending. So I'm asking all the guests that come on the podcast, what does 20 years mean to you? What was your 20th year? What was your 20th birthday? What If I say to you, 20, you're 20 now, what, what are you thinking? Okay, well, the so first thing I'm thinking is 2008, mm-hmm. housing collapse, housing collapse, very stressful time. Uh, no, I did, I did not own any house. <laughs> but um, no, let's see, so 2008, it's, it's tricky because... In some ways, I don't remember much about what I was doing before 2010, late 2009, because that's the time where I really uh, took filmmaking seriously in terms of, okay, I've, I've been wanting to do this for a while, but now I'm going to actually do it. I'm going to start making shorts. I'm going to really put myself out there. I'm going to work as an editor. For other filmmakers, I'm going to really get involved in both post-production and writing and you know, really take this seriously. And it's been sort of, a, you know, a, a nonstop train since then. So it's a little tricky to remember exactly what I was doing in 2008. But I do know, 
you know, one of the first things that sort of got me into films with a critical eye, yeah. and this is sort of an embarrassing thing to admit, but I have to be honest about it. Uh, in college, we were required, because I was a general arts student, you were required to join a club, mm -hmm. and one of the clubs was film club. And I thought to myself, oh, well, that's easy because all you have to do is watch a movie once. You know, you watch a movie at some point through these two weeks and then you get together once a month or once every couple of months with the group and you talk about it and you get your art credit or you get your, you get your club credit. And uh, little did I know that it would really sort of push me to take my love of movies that was already there and actually, you know, uh, start to look at things with a critical eye and really, uh, you know, go for go for being a director. What was what was the first film then in, in 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 your film club that that sort of turned you on to film as it were you know as in like there's one thing going with like low expectations this is going to be easy but if if it has such an impact on you do you remember the film that that you were asked to watch and you were like hold on a minute you know I think the first film you know, I I had I had seen a lot of the films that we watched in that club there wasn't mm. anything that was too ridiculous but it was definitely the first time that I heard people speak about you know. Brazil or Blade Runner with more of a critical eye. I mean, I, I loved those movies and I liked them and I understood that, you know, they had these great directors attached, but I wasn't really breaking down uh, the, the technical side of it or the story structure side. So those were the first couple films I remember, uh, films that I had seen that were being spoken about in a different way. But then as far as films that I hadn't seen, you know, it's probably the first time I had seen La Jetée, which I had no idea was really where the beginning of 12 Monkeys was, which was a favorite film of my dad's from when I was growing up. So there were things like that that started to started to come together. And I saw a lot of a lot of my childhood love for films coming together with this uh, sort of more critical approach that was you know common in an in a educational setting. I remember doing a, a screenwriting class and uh, the guy doing the session played La Jetée and a bit like when I first heard Trap Rass Replica by Captain Beefheart. I'm like, what is this shit? <laughs> and then and then for weeks after, it never left my head. It, it's, it always sticks in your head. Every time I see that, I wonder why why isn't everyone just making something like this just for <laughs> themselves as practice? Because it's it's so accessible to just, you know, go out and shoot still photography and then record a story a voice and then have some interesting music i mean it's it's almost like a great exercise that people should be doing even if they're not putting it out there just to sort of to keep their yeah keep their mind sharp from a creative standpoint because you know you have a you can do something like that much more easily on your own in some respects as opposed to a full but also point. but also it's a great example isn't it of how production values can exist in the viewer's head yeah absolutely Right then, sir. Let's uh, let's jump into sadistic intentions. And given you wrote and directed it, and brackets edited it, um, let's start. I guess at the beginning of the journey. Um, and you've given in your in your introduction, you sort of gave us some ideas of tone by comparable. But what was what what for you was was your kind of kernel of an idea that um, that got you on the road to what became sadistic intentions as a screenplay. Well, it's sort of difficult to track the initial kernel for this because a large part of it was uh, born from the rubble of a previous film that did not happen, which I had casted the same three people. Right. I had the same location, and we had even rehearsed that film quite a bit uh, in person when I was when I was more close in proximity with the actors. 
And then when that film fell apart for, you know, scheduling and, you know, budgetary reasons is slightly larger in scope than, than sadistic intentions. I was also in the process of moving states and it kind of felt like everything was up in the air. I felt like I had these three great actors that I'd wanted to make this movie with for so long and they seemed willing to sort of be on standby for a year while I put a new film together that was smaller and a little more doable. Uh, so really the first kernel was the three of them. I mean, it, it was written for them because they were attached to a different film. Uh, in some ways, some characteristics of the other film made it into this, but not really. I haven't read that script in a very long time, but uh, it, the, the three people in the house were the first kernel. So it, it was really written from what I knew I had and then uh, what could I write that was even more contained in scope and even more focused on uh, a story, a sort of a juicy situation that lived and died on the acting in many respects. And that's where I, why I reference films like Dead Calm or Cape Fear, you know, especially Dead Calm, where it's, you know, it's three people on a boat the entire time. I mean, yeah. there's some amazing production value. The camera work is you know, incredible, you know, Philip Noyce is an, an, an incredible Australian director, but it really, it really does rely on the three of them. And, you know, with that, that is, you know, Billy Zane, Sam Neill and Nicole Kidman. And in some ways I, I looked at the three, the three cast in this movie, very similar. I, I wanted to treat them as though they had sort of these A-list actor roles, shoes to fill in, in the terms of really, really carrying and driving the story. Yeah, because it's sort of in in a dramatic sense, three characters is like a sweet spot, isn't it? Because you've got you've got six relationships to sort of manage, which is yeah. it's weird because when there's only two actors, you've only got two relationships. But it's it's yeah. you add one, and suddenly you've got all you've got a lot more dynamics to play with, haven't you? Exactly, and I, I you know, it, it, by no means comparing the, the the production scope of our film to uh, to Cape Fear, definitely. Or dead calm, but it was it was really the, the the interpersonal relationships of those two movies that it it felt like even with everything else that it had going for it that you could strip all of that down, put these three people on a theater stage, and it would be just as engaging. Uh, and that was sort of the, the the kernel for the structure of this. I, I I just knew I had a great a great house that was you know it had the benefit of an on location look, but it was really ours and secluded and big enough for us to sort of treat like a like a stage slash production office, it felt like we could just really keep everything honed nice and close to to the interiors and exteriors of this house. So, did you did you write for the house, or did you write the script and the house became available? I wrote the script for the house because the script written previously, and we're talking three or four years even before that, yeah. was for the house as well. I, I've I've all I've I've known the person. I, I've actually worked for the person who owns the house, and ever since I first uh shot cooking videos for this woman because she she owns a a kitchen uh cooking baking store and catering service yeah she does a lot of she does a lot of work out of the house and i would shoot these cooking videos and you know was very friendly with her and always sort of had it in the back of my head that if, if i get to make a feature someday very likely going to be a horror or a thriller film and this is the house to do it because because the reason i say that is it's because the, the, the house itself is almost like a fourth character isn't it because there's so much character to the place it's a very very strange house and it's 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 such a strange house that i don't even know if we captured entirely how strange it is that's something that i'm i'm, I'm pretty blind to at this point if we really captured how just odd this place is for the location that it's in yeah because you don't you, you you never you never quite 
because because you've got I mean this this isn't too spoiler I suppose the character of Kevin isn't isn't always there as it were so for want of a better expression yeah so but he's present like almost like a ghost even though he's not um, so as 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 the characters of Stu and Chloe are are talking and stuff we're seeing the house and it and given where the where the conversation starts on the phone between Kevin and Chloe you kind of going this is all a bit grand this mm-hmm. is all a bit this is all a bit uh, refined where 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 does this fit and then when the you know such, you know play, playing out sat out by the pool and you're like oh what, yeah exactly. what what's going on like it sort of like it feels almost absurd absolutely absolutely it's uh, in in some ways constructed like you know, like like a two act play to some point. I mean, I I personally see the three act structure. I'm I'm a bit of a a bit of a sucker for three act structure. But mm. with, with that said, I'm I'm always very much a fan of traditional, straightforward things. But when I go to do that myself, I you know traces of it make it through. But it also sort of ends up being its own weird thing. And I th- I think this is a perfect example of that where it's. Uh, you know, Kevin is introduced right about the 40-minute mark, and the movie's 80, 81 minutes long. Uh, so you really get sort of these these, these two these two different stories that are backed up against one another. Yeah, yeah. So where where does the uh, the sort of metal music influence come from? Is that is that something you're a fan of yourself, or is that something you thought fitted the story? I am. I mean, before before filmmaking became you know sort of the thing that I was gonna really go for and commit everything to, I you know, grew up playing music and played in several metal bands from age, I guess, 16 through 23, 24, right. various types, you know, playing shows in and around the state that I grew up in. And yeah, I very much knew that world. And I feel like there's, uh, there, there is rich material within that subgenre. It's been represented more in film recently, but there's still, I think a lot, a lot to say about people that for the most part, other people have their minds made up about already. Yeah, because it's it, the, the the blast beat is not not something you get a lot in cinema. Uh, if truth be told, and obviously I'm I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm of a vintage that uh, that that sort of grew up with um, extreme noise terror and uh, Napalm Death when they were uh, riding their crest of a wave, and John Peel on BBC Radio was regularly playing them to yeah. bemused mainstream audiences. Um, so to see it in the 21st century uh, still going strong, it's it's a fun it's a fun thing for me. Um, it's 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 especially bringing this film, you know, to the UK. London, the UK is you know so pivotal in the blast beat just with mm. uh, with Napalm Death with Napalm Death alone. Yeah, it's uh, it, it feels appropriate to be bringing this movie over. But yeah, <laughs> the, uh, you know, in grindcore specifically is something where. You know, if if metal and black metal weren't already obscure enough, this is diving into uh, you know corners of even a little bit more obscurity, which is grindcore. Not even just grindcore, but computer grindcore, where there's no actual drummer, and we're talking about yeah. That, but I must heads. admit that was news to me. The whole the program drum blast beat. <laughs> well, you know, there there's there there are definitely the metalheads that live by sort of the the party lifestyle and they want to tour and they want to be around people all the time. But then there's also the corner of metalheads that, you know, would rather just not work with many other people or leave their apartment. If they had it their way, they'd rather do a lot of things on the computer. And I think that's really the, 
you know, as obscure as it might be, the the corner in which you know Stu and Kevin dwell in. So it's it's sort of trying to uh, tell something very specific in the, in their personality types, but through a broader story with uh, you know sort of cautionary themes that we've seen before. Um, but yeah, I think that's been you know maybe maybe a little tough for some people to wonder why these guys aren't wearing black leather jackets and you know, uh, boots with studs and things like that. It's because, uh, you know, these guys, these guys don't leave their bedrooms for the most part. They have, they have really no one to, to show off to. No, not which is a labor the point, only because, only because this kind of music appearing in, in odd places always, always, always entertains me. I don't know if you've seen, uh, Christian Applegate in, um, Dead to Me, the Netflix TV series. I have not seen that. Someone was just telling me about it a couple of days ago though. So were they telling you about how she chills out listening to Grindcore? I was not told that, and now I'm questioning my friendship with that person because that person know, knows I love grindcore, and why they would not tell me that is beyond me. Because, because as someone that, that may have that have seen that have seen Christina, Christina Applegate in Married with Children, to then see her as a grown woman chilling out in like, a, like for sake of argument, a BMW while raging to grindcore is a sight to behold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's always it's always been around metal. It, it, it is funny because it, recently we've seen more metal characters represented in films, but metal's always had an interesting place. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to even you know the first time I saw Mortal Kombat, and there's mm. a, the the fear the Fear Factory song that plays over the the Johnny Cage Scorpion fight, it, or you know tidbits of different black metal songs from Gummo. It's it's always been there and around. It's always been effective, especially you know I'm thinking of uh, both the original and the remake of Funny Games you know, use sort of spastic grindcore in the opening credits to, to such a powerful degree. Yeah, no, and, and I loved, I loved, I loved uh, the use of um, Sono's guitar in Mandy, uh, which obviously... Absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, the, the, the fact that they got those guys to, to to get in on the score is pretty incredible. So, yeah, it, it's always been around. It's it's always been there, but it's uh, I, I still think that there's a, a wellspring of inspiration and ideas and personalities to be to be pulled from you know the the metal scene and it's it's really personality that I'm I'm from a I'm from a, and the reason I'm wanting to bring it up is obviously from a stereotype point of view and maybe a cliched perception of what somebody who's into grindcore might be um, you play with that quite well in the idea of you know. Sh- hey, hello, there we go. You see. My first, you're my first, you're my first fall at the fence. I think it was my end, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> right, I'll rephrase. It was me asking a question, which is good, because that means you're not from what you were saying. Um, cool. Let me start my question again. So the reason I was sort of laboring the point about the sort of grindcore is that what you do love really nicely in the film is you you give us the opposite of the cliche perception of the sort of angsty, bedroom, cabin-fevered, grindcore kind of intense musician kind of character and then you sort of blossom out of that maybe a bit of a soft romantic that was always in there yeah i think you know the the bedroom fanatic dangerous mindset is there you know i think that that stereotype has been represented in films and popular culture in some ways because there is a truth to that you know it, with hmm. every misrepresent with every misrepresentation or with every you know, sort of statement like that, it's, it's mostly a judgment, but there's, there, there's some sort of truth to it. And I think I'm very aware of things that both, you know, while it might have the truth, there is a a more well-rounded image there. And that's what I was trying to do. I I do, I do feel that there is uh, a 
a, a dangerous mindset that can come with that, not metal specifically, but just, you know, mad artistry or obsession or self-interest or all of those things, which, you know, exist in all the arts, but they do exist within metal as well. And I, I think that that's something that, you know, is, is not to be shied away from, but at the same time, there is a more well-rounded human picture to be, uh, to be taken there. And that's where the, the softer romantic side comes from, because that's, that's true for, for metalheads as well. It's, Metal really people can fall day. in love. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. It, you know, it happened to me. It's happened to many people I've known. <laughs> but um, it really, the, to just to wrap it even a little nicer up is that you know we're all human. We're all really the same. I, I think everyone has that. I think metalheads have have their degree of frustrations, and those are specific maybe to to that cliche sort of. But it's the, the, you know there is so much more still. No, and, and and again, there's there's like the cutesy, there's a cutesy moment where um, where Chloe shares some of her music, as it were, and it's like I don't know, like, like for want of a better expression, it's kind of like a dire straitsy kind of bluesy mm-hmm. soft number, and and that's terrifying to your blast beat man, and it's and it's lovely because because then it's like he's he's a man who can primal scream at the trees without any fear of humiliation or reprisal, but ask him to slow dance and he'll run a mile. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, that's, it's, it's the constant tug of war that was, you know, at least for the first 40 minutes, just mm. trying to find ways to, to tug, to have them, you know, pull back and forth at one another, which, you know, if you tug of war long enough, chances are you might both end up near the middle, which is sort of where uh, the intention was for them to go. So what what do you think you're doing then with a kind I guess with 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 notions of machismo I suppose because obviously metal is is you know given the character is this this singer in this blast power like me, uh, extreme metal band what do you think it's sort of saying about the sort of the, the cross between sort of machismo machismo music but actually heart and soul of people absolutely I, I yeah there's in you know as someone who loves metal and who, who, you know, when I listen to it, I, I deconstruct it for all the different things that are happening. You know, there is there is heart and soul to that as well. I, I think there, there's heart and soul to, to every kind of music. It's just a matter of someone, you know, taking your hand or showing you or introducing it to you or, you know, reframing it for you in a better way to understand. That's you know, which is ultimately what uh, Chloe is trying to do with Stu, although he's incredibly stubborn. So Stu and Chloe, I can I can understand as as, as characters. Within your film, because they're kind of there are there are I guess there are universal truths, aren't they? I suppose that the, the, the yeah. two they're two opposing universal truths because they don't they don't understand the whole thing that's going on. So where where does the character of Kevin come from then, in terms of your mind and what you were thinking in terms of horror? In terms of horror, or you know what that what that character really achieves, you know that that character is really a stake in the ground or, you know, a knife trying to cut the two of them apart that says, no, you know, these two types of people cannot be together. You are this and, and I am like you and you are like me and I know what is better for you. And this is what we have to do to her. Mm. Uh, it's really, you know, really where, where Kevin comes into the picture. He has, has a history with Stu, but from, from a perspective of, you know, him being introduced at the halfway mark, it really is uh, this, Sort of driving the two of them apart, but he's but he's kind he's he's more than just sort of um, than just driving them apart. He's 
he's positively obtuse in the way he behaves. Even though, you know, Stu's caught between, I guess, his friendship, the bigger plan, and then obviously these new feelings he's found in himself that he gets for Chloe. So, so what is, what, what, what do you think Kevin is? He's, what, so I guess, what I'm. What I'm Kev, well, Kevin, Kevin is the wor- is the potential worst version of Stu. Okay, okay, got you. That that you know he he's representative of you know clearly what happens if you go too far a path that Stu has been on. He's you know Chloe becomes sort of this this net or this you know, fishing line from the shore to reel him back into reality, bring him towards you know some sense of otherness outside of himself, mm. and that's really where you know while the tug of war may have been between. Stu and Chloe, in terms of getting to know each other in the first half, the, the tug of war in the second half, it's it's in some ways Chloe and Kevin tugging on Stu. Mm, okay, got or, it. Or him, him feeling this need to be pulled either way. Obviously, you know, once you see the film, you'll realize there's not a whole lot of tugging that Chloe has to do at that point. But there is, uh, you know, there is certainly the image of her there. And the condition that she is, is is causing Stu to be pulled two different ways. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's kind of, I think that's it's sort of, there's the, there's the bigger plan and then there's the change in Stu's mind that's happened that Kevin can't control. And so all, all chaos ensues, I suppose, is the good way of summarising without without spoiling. Um, so uh, what given, given you say you've, you, you've shot on this location, always wanted to do, always had your eye on using it as, as, a, as a set for a feature film. What what do you remember being a kind of a favorite favorite day of the shoot, and what what made it such a good day for you? Favorite day of the shoot, you know, probably probably towards the end because it's unfortunately not until you know the last week of the last few days that you feel like you're really like you're really doing good work. Especially when you're shooting a film in fifteen days and everyone's yeah. you know you're, you're you're getting warmed up and you're certainly making things work better in the edit and. Such like that, but from from a directing sort of just the crew and the team and the ship functioning well together, it felt like the last week, which would have been, you know, the majority of uh, some of the scenes we did near the end of the film inside of the house. You know, we, mm. we had it broken up a certain way where one week we were shooting in the basement and another week we were shooting only outside. And then the third week we were shooting inside, uh, you know, the entire movie is at night. So 80 percent of our time was night shoots. It really felt like by the you know by the end with that quick of a shoot you really were were getting the best or at least you were getting the best within only the first couple takes. Got you. Now uh, the the house was incredible. I mean, it was in some ways I've I've had the house in my mind for so long, so I had a lot of preconceived notions about hmm. how we wanted to shoot it. But it was also a lot of relying on my DP when we got to the house to sort of reintroduce me to to things and angles that I'd maybe never seen before. I'm gonna say. So, what, what would what would you? How was your conversation with your DP? What were what were you asking for, or what was what was he she saying to you um, that could be done with what you had? Well, so the DP again was a DP that was attached to the other film that right. never happened. So, okay. uh, you know, majority of people that came from that. So we had had, you know, years and years of just talking movies. Uh, our love for Brian De Palma, all, all sorts of just different, you know, uh, photographic styles. And it really became a thing with this one where no one had been to the house. The house existed in a state that none of us were in. I used to live in that state. So it was really up to me to have a plan in my mind for where we were going when we all got there. Uh, But outside of that, it was always, you know, we got there and did a quick scout. And the DP had ideas for where different scenes could happen based on 
lighting and just the corners and the time of the evening and things like that. So it was a lot of it was just practical once we got there figuring it out. But we'd had years and years of just similar love for films and cinematographers, photographic looks and things like that to where we just knew each other well enough by the time we got there. Got you. Now, you, like we said at the beginning, you, you also edited this film. So, and given, given the, I guess the gestation this, this thing has gone through where it was like a, a film project that never, never quite got going, but you, the, the, the actors you sort of always had in mind, the location you always had in mind, <laughs> your DP you always had in mind. So when you, when you got to shoot this and then you're in the edit, now here you are with your other hat on, what, what, what new things emerged, do you think, for you, story-wise, that you you couldn't have foreseen before you went in the edit. I will say the probably the the singular thing that came out of editing that purely was born from editing was yeah. uh, so sort of the you know it was always going to be a bit of a slow burn, but uh, the use of dissolves, I think, sound design to transition some moments to others. I mean, that sort of thing was never really in the script. It was, you know, a little, probably a little more snappy or hard cuts in the script. But when it got into the edit, I found, I found this way to blend sound design from an uh, an encroaching thunderstorm with, you know, ambiences of outside because there's no one around and there's crickets and all these different critters that you hear and sort of really uh, the, the sound design worked its way into the pace. And I remember at the time the return of Twin Peaks was on TV and that was probably the only thing that I was breaking away to watch when I wasn't editing. And I think a lot of that, I think a lot of, um, you know, David Lynch's approach to season three sort of found its way in, uh, in into the sound design and some of the pacing, especially within the first 20 minutes or so. Now I'm, I'm looking at a, a beautiful piece of poster artwork of Sadistic Intentions, which has got a kind of almost like a bluey tinge cartoon feel. Uh, where's the, who's done that, and where does that, what was what was behind that idea? That was done by a friend of mine, yeah. uh, poster designer Ryan Harris, and that was you know that was something we had around. I think we had that around the time we shot. You know, we have a have a new poster being designed right now, which has a little bit more. Uh, of a plan put into it in terms of what we wanted to show. But that was, that was more just something that he'd taken some imagery that we had had shared online and whipped this thing up and it looked really, really good. And I loved it. And I felt like it represented um, definitely sort of the, 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 uh, the thriller aspect of it that's, that's brought in by the second half. Um, but it's in terms of, you know, the representation of the, the steamy romance and sort of the, the different uh, layers of deception that are revealed. That's a lot of that's being more born into a, a current poster we have being worked on now. Okay. Okay. So uh, you're coming to London for the, for the, for the, um, for the film at Fright Fest. Um, what's your experience, what's your experiences of London been today? <sighs> what has my experience been with London so far? Yeah. Oh my, well, I've never been there. So this is my first time coming over. Well, welcome. So I have, the only the only frame of reference I really have for the festival is uh, a buddy of mine, Joe Begas, has had a couple movies play at Fright Fest over the years, and I've I've heard good things from him about that. So I'm incredibly excited, and he's going to be there, be there with his new one called Bliss as well. And I've seen it, and it's fucking awesome. There's there's just a bunch of movies playing. Uh, this, there's a film Harpoon that's playing that I've seen at another festival. It's incredible. It's going to be awesome. It's uh, it's going to be fun to to be in a a new place where I've never been, but with seems to be like a, a whole bunch of people that I'm pals with. They're going to be there as well. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I had I had uh, 
Graham Skipper on, uh, one of the producers on Bliss. On yeah, the, yeah. I have an offshoot show called uh, Five Great British Horror Films. And uh, Graham come on to share his five favourite British horror films. Is yeah. he going to be there as well, I think? I don't know, actually. Coming? I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't sure. Um, so hopefully, yes. Um, but uh, before we, we get into diaries, let me just say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Do you want to remind people as to when they can see Statistic Intentions? Yes, August 23rd. It's a Friday at uh, 6.30 p.m. at Cineworld, Leicester Square, and it's on the Discovery screen. Single tickets are available now. I think badges are on sale as well. I'm not sure if those have sold out or not, but yes, that's where we will be August 23rd. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks very much. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.